Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a painstaking part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistic Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center hosted via satellite uplink from a haga stand in Edinburgh, Scotland. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Bill Sproul. Hey. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. And also joining us on the program is our very first guest ever, returning after two and a half year hiatus, Devin Steiner. Welcome, Devin. Thanks for coming back on the show with us. Yeah, sure thing. Took me a while to uh, recover from the last time. <laughs> to get over the last one. <laughs> it's the treatment. It's really expensive. I know. I know. <laughs> it is. But I think, I think I'm ready to go through it for another two and a half years. So here I am. All right. Got your insurance is all paid up. Absolutely. <laughs> Have insurance again. I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. I've got three language-related items. Two are true, and one is specious. You guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. So our theme this time is language planning. Item number one. In 1916, Emil Schwerer devised an artificial pidgin language, Colonial Deutsch, for use by residents of German colonies who were thought not to be smart enough to speak real German. Item number two. Laurent, South Dakota was a proposed planned community south of Salem, South Dakota. It was designed for deaf, hard of hearing, and other American Sign Language users. Item number three. Washington, D.C. is a planned city designed by French architect and city planner Pierre L'Enfant in the 1790s. L'Enfant's original design included plans for each of the four quadrants, northwest, northeast, southwest, and southeast, to have a different primary language for signs and street names, in particular English, French, German, and Dutch. Which one is the specious one? Who wants to go first? I could go first. Go ahead. Okay, so the first one, which I think would be probably pronounced something like Colonial Deutsch, that one sounds pretty true to me. I mean, frankly, the claim was that people wouldn't be smart enough to speak real German, right? And I mean, let's face it, nobody's smart enough to speak real German. I'm not. Probably most Germans aren't even. So this one's probably true, I think. The uh, South Dakota planned community for ASL users, that's possibly true. Personally, if I were going to plan a community, I would not choose South Dakota because it has just about all the cold of Minnesota, but without the ice fishing. So I don't think I would do that, but this is probably a specious claim. So I think I'll say it's the false one. And the Washington DC one, you know, four quadrants with four different languages. That's exactly how urban planners think. So I'm sure that's got to be true. <laughs> all right. Who wants to go next? I'll take a stab at it. The one about the colonial Deutsch, I agree with Keith. I think that's believable, especially given colonial attitudes. Number two, I think is, I, I'm. let me skip to number three and come back to number two. <laughs> number three is believable for Washington, D.C., because anything that makes Washington, D.C. more difficult to navigate seems like the kind of thing the planner of Washington, D.C. would have done. So I believe that one. Number two, the, that is the wrong one, because if you think about it carefully, it was designed for deaf, hard of hearing, and other American Sign Language users. Deaf and hard of hearing are not American Sign Languages. So that one's the false one. <laughs> <laughs> right. What is South Dakota an American sign language? <laughs> so Bill's having a few scoping problems, but other than that, let's, yeah, let's move along. Oh, it's That's Bill's problem, issue. not the <laughs> sentence. That okay, I no, get Bill, it. This is your problem. But it's I'm happy that you scoping. agree. I'll have to teach my students that one. No, I didn't have a parallel structure problem. You're having scoping issues. <laughs> <laughs> 
Delicious scoping is what it is. <laughs> That's exactly right. Which is nicely alliterative anyway. All right, Sherry. All right. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I hate all of these. I think they're all terrible. And uh, okay. So I think that they're all false, but now I've got to pick one anyway, right? Because that's how this silly game is played. That is correct. Okay. Okay. I just want I just want to go on the record as objecting to them all. Okay. So Washington, DC. <laughs> Great. Names, different names. That sounds like sort of fun, actually. And it strikes me as the sort of thing you would do. And I was confused when I was in Washington, DC. And I think that causes confusion, and there certainly is a great deal of confusion sort of in that general general area in a lot of ways. And so I'm thinking maybe that's true. Let's see. Number two. Well, okay. So my spouse is from North Dakota. So I cheated and I asked him and he'd never heard of this thing in South Dakota. But then I thought that doesn't really mean anything because that's South Dakota, right? So, so that didn't really help me. Even though I tried really hard to cheat, it didn't help me at all, which makes me mad. But South Dakota is really, really cold. And so you want to get as much exercise as you can so you don't freeze to death outside standing around. And because you have to do that Midwest thing of saying goodbye to people by following them out to their car. You know how you do that? And you, you know, they walk out and you walk out and you stand by the car and you talk for a while. And if you had to do that without moving around a lot, you'd freeze to death and die. So, <laughs> so you, it's a survival mechanism to use American Sign Language in South Dakota. So obviously that's where you'd put that colony if there were going to be one. It's all about blood flow. It's, it's all about blood flow. <laughs> Vigorous arm movements. Yeah. I'm taking a scientific <laughs> approach to this. Um, yeah, so that leaves me, it leaves me with number one, which I think is just mean. And I think if you're going to be mean to people and call them names and say they're not very smart, you're not going to go to all that trouble to help them out. Because why would you want to talk to them anyway? If you're a rat like that, then, you know, why would you bother? And besides, I'm going to try to take a positive, uplifting, affirming approach to this podcast today and not be grumbly. So I'm going to eliminate the mean one. And I think number one is mean. So one is the specious one. Okay. Devin, you're up. Okay. So I'm concerned because all of these seemed plausible to me. That is the goal. Yes. That, well, that's what Trey's hoping for. <laughs> He's never achieved it before, but... Um. <laughs> I, I'm just afraid that that means there's something wrong with me and my understanding of the world if these seem remotely plausible. Given that, I think the first one is the false one, for similar reasons as uh, Sherry just said, but... You might want to reconsider. <laughs> but this is the only one I have an argument for. Um... Okay, so given that... You might want to be generally contrarian. <laughs> you don't have to let him influence you, Devin. Oh, no, don't, Just because don't, he, he, he so made the He could be tricky, but he's like that. That's true, that's true. All right, I'm going to stick with my uh, decision. Number one, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> let everyone sway me. But no, if you are a colonizer, you believe people aren't smart enough to speak your language, you're not going to go out of your way to create some pigeon variety that's okay for them to speak. You're just going to look down on however they create a pigeon of their own, right? So I'm going to say one is not true. Okay. Well, let's do them in order then. Boldly done, oh, Devin. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> so number one is in fact true. <laughs> <laughs> I assume the justification was when the uh, German overlords come to the colonies, they can just 
speak in simple sentences and small words, and the stupid people would be able to understand if they knew some colonial Deutsch. It's a mean world. Is even mean. the date? I said even the date is correct. I'm doubtful. Yeah. What happened though is that the language was never used because Germany lost all its colonies by the end of World War One. Mm-hmm. All right, number two. Okay, so that brings us to the false one. That one is also true. No. Yes. Not as it's written. (laughs) (laughs) It may not be grammatical, but it is in fact true that there was a proposed planned community in South Dakota for the deaf, the hard of hearing, and other American Sign Language users. I don't think we can be required to answer questions based on your perlocutionary force. (laughs) (laughs) Or his scope. It's optional, Bill. You can quit anytime you want. (laughs) Did anyone else have significant trouble understanding the intent of that sentence? Not the intent, only the truth conditions struck me as a bit (laughs) doubtful. And I can always just re-record my reading of it and edit that in and no one will ever know. Anyway, that brings (laughs) us to number three. And in fact, in D.C., as far as I know, there was never any plan to use different languages in the different quadrants of D.C., though if they had, that would have been awesome because for those of you who are not familiar with D.C., actual D.C. proper, there are two first streets, second streets, third streets, fourth streets, and there are two A streets, B streets, and C streets, and so on. And so the intersection, there are four intersections of, say, third and B, though not all the possible intersections That's sensible. exist. But yeah, so there's four of everything. And so you have to include the northwest, northeast, southwest, southeast to make sure you're in the right quadrant of D.C. So at least if they had different languages, you know where you were supposed to be. It's insane. This is a So sorry, did night. you just say D.C. proper? The actual part of Washington, D.C., as opposed to the greater metropolitan Washington, D.C. area, which includes significant portions of Maryland and Virginia. Right, but I didn't think there was anything proper about D.C., but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really tough night. There's one mean one, one dumb one, and one that wasn't the right answer. <laughs> That was an unfortunately primed adjective. (laughs) Devin, I have never led the guests astray. Yeah. That was way too much of a hint, too. But you were bold. She deserves credit for sticking to it. I mean, she was bold. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of us are way more more grubbing and, you know, we've got (laughs) way less pride. But she really stood up. For the honor of the guests. (laughs) But brought down their scores a little. Oops. (laughs) Moral victory. (laughs) Speaking of the scores, the good news is I've moved up from tied for next to last to second. (laughs) Sherry's still in the lead. (laughs) By a little bit, by 1%. And then uh, Keith and Bill, and then bringing up the rear, we have the guests. Though, Devin, don't feel bad. You were in a bad position to start with. Statistically speaking. That makes me feel a little better. (laughs) Obviously, this was a hard one because it was a clean sweep for me, which almost never happens. So they accused me of being tricky, so I decided to be tricky. And I've already completely (sighs) forgotten which one it was that was the false one. That's how how tricky this one was. (laughs) Well, great. So we'll have a special episode of... uh, Lies Damn Lies Linguistics, just for you, with these exact same questions. Well, I I try to forget these also because I think that's the way to mental health. (laughs) Certainly obsessing over it and or your score is not going to help you in any way now. Oh, I think it's really good to pay attention to your score. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see if you still feel that way the next time you get one wrong. I'm gonna hurry up and run out. I'm gonna run out and tweet this immediately and, and proclaim my victory on the Twittersphere. Twittersphere, Twittersphere, Twittersphere. What is that? Twitterverse, all those pronunciations seem specious to me. Twitterverse, Twitterverse, Twitterverse. Oh man! You get the rule of R dropping before verse. That's Twitter-verse. how that works. Yeah. Uh, 
No one follows. Doesn't me it become a, it becomes an O, right? Twitto verse, doesn't it? No, no. It's preversal eroticism. <laughs> All right. Well, that would be our new jargon for the day. Our guest, Devin, has to go. And so we're going to say goodbye to her. Thanks for hanging out with me and the rest of the Ling Nerds this time. And we'll see you next time for more Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics, I hope. Yep, definitely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. And we'll be back after this word from our sponsor. Ladies, does your man suffer from shorter than average vowel length? Do your girlfriends giggle when he speaks? Do you wish he could last a little longer? We can help. Our special proprietary herbal supplement mix enhances, extends, enlarges, and expands your man's vowels. Our pharmacolinguists have created a special blend of Japanese ginseng, Hungarian saw palmetto, Vietnamese ginkgo biloba, Uisenyo damiana extract, Sanskrit yohimbe, Fijian deer antler, and Old English horny goat weed. I love a man with long, sexy vowels. Length mark male enhancement. Make your man all you want him to be. Warning, this statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Be sure to check with your healthcare practitioner before taking any dietary supplement. Common side effects include uncontrolled gymnation, sudden onset ligatures, barred gilded J's, understroke ends, excessive vowel unrounding, nighttime trilling, and in extreme cases, lossification. If you experience vowels lasting more than four hours, consult the phonetician immediately. Welcome back, everybody. As you know, we've been getting more and more frequent alerts on the Spectram hotline about roving bands of physicists and statisticians. They tend to be a friendly and gregarious people, but their unfamiliar folk ways and practices can be a bit alarming, particularly to some of us older linguists and most particularly to philologists who famously abhor noise and hectic commotion. That's why they keep their conferences so small. So you can imagine the response when a quartet of boisterous analysts made a beeline straight for the Iliad, a text philologists are so intent on preserving from harm that they force undergraduates to read it in translation in hopes that the students will then stay away from it forever. In the typical fashion of the kind of academics who want to be all cutting edge, the four authors then plied it with glottochronology and tried to date it. <laughs> the most novel part of their approach involved focusing on the Iliad's more Swadeshly bits and offhandedly bringing up Hittite, modern Greek, and rates of lexical change for comparison. They were apparently successful, although also in the manner of academics, they were careful about hedging, couching their report in terms of plus or minus 700 years or so. (laughs) Their midpoint, however, was 707 BC, which matches up fairly well with what the philologists have said about the Iliad, although without all the polite footnotes. And they did all of this without a single Atkinson. (laughs) So what do you guys think? Next big thing or a kind of specious data kegger gone bad? (laughs) Oh, data kegger. I love that. Data kegger. (laughs) One interesting thing is that despite the recent comments about uh, lack of computational philology out in the world, that's exactly what they seem to be doing, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. Though I did think there was a lot of specious shucking and jiving going on. I couldn't help myself because there was math involved. So I looked at the article and then I also looked at the previous article that they were quoting about their change rate data. And the earlier article was kind of disappointing because they looked at English, Spanish, Russian, and Greek, and they were able to explain 50% of language variability based on frequency-based lexical replacement rates. 50%, five zero. Yeah. So for a single variable, that's nice, right? I mean, you know, that's a big thing, but it's still only half, right? So as a one-factor model, it's not really a good idea. Uh, It's pretty underpowered. And so I think that shows in the analysis they do in the the current paper, because 
it's just not enough to do what they tried to do. One thing I had a problem with the other earlier papers that they ignored things like Icelandic, where the change rates are like 4% or something, mm. you know, much, much lower than in other languages. Anyway, as Bill mentioned, there was a huge spread of possible dates. So it was the 95% confidence interval, right? was about 1300 years. And what I want to know is, was there even a 5% chance? Was anyone thinking in the world that there was a 5% chance that was outside of that range from 61 to 1300 BC? I mean, that's just, that's just crazy, right? They actually got a better date of uh, 762 BC by munging the model to take on an, an a priori assumption that the date was around 800 BC with a 200-year standard deviation mm. based on the historical and philological evidence, right? So that, that dragged their most likely date back to 762 BC, which I think is more in line with what people were thinking it really was. But basically what they did here is they started off with the assumption based on historical evidence that it was 800 BCE plus or minus 400 years. And then once they applied their algorithm to it, they ended up with 762 BC plus or minus 390 years, which is hardly anything at all. I mean, that was so totally earth-shatteringly worth it. I mean, they didn't really do anything. <laughs> I think it's just total crap. But anyway, it reminds me of uh, two rules of thumb that we've talked about before on the show, which is when you mix disciplines, you can always baffle and BS anyone who comes from one of the fields by falling back into the other field, which I call the computational linguistics rule because it's very true in computational linguistics. And then secondly, almost everyone is scared of or impressed by math, whether it's specious or otherwise. Let me get this straight. I just want to check something. So when you say they munged their data, mm -hmm. they took the answer that everyone that philologists told them was the right answer and said, what would our model do if we told it this was the right answer and then told it to try to get that? Almost. Yeah. So if we said that was the current best guess, mess with it. So yeah, pretty much. Okay. When they just used their method, they got 707 BC. Could they adopt a kind of, I don't know, maximum likelihood assumption that what other people in the field think is correct is correct? Well, that's what they did, basically, was they modified the algorithm to use Bayesian priors, you know, that say the historical and philological evidence points to 800 BC. So we'll start with that. And then what happens when we apply our glottochronology on top of that? But they could have said, we'll start with that. And given what we know, we'll just stay there. Right? <laughs> they could have had a model that just says multiply by one. <laughs> You're kind of saying, let's start with the best possible guess of what it was and then say, could we make this a bit wronger, maybe? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to, I just wanted to check. So they narrowed the 95% confidence interval from plus or minus 400 years to plus or minus 390 years, which is technically better. That's a kind of progress. <laughs> but isn't really, wasn't significant. But then, yeah, like they seem to have moved the date. Off of the 800 BC to 762 BC, which is worse than the, the philologist would say, but it's better than their original when they ignored the philologist and got 707 BC. Okay, okay, but, but, but hang on, hang on. So obviously, the philological and historical evidence, mm -hmm. it's not really 800 BC. That's just a round number that somebody picked. So they've actually done better, right? They've given us an actual number somewhere around there. A more memorable number, a number that would be harder to memorize. Well, maybe harder to memorize. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's less memorable. Yeah, this will and be a better test right? question than <laughs> BC, right? I mean, that's too easy to remember. Right. But that was obviously just a round number somebody picked. It's somewhere around there. And so these guys have gotten, oh, this, is, this approach is non-specious. They've got a better answer than what we had. So for me, the, the big thing is really the error bars on this thing, the 95% confidence interval. 
includes the time when later people were talking about the Iliad having been written. So it's actually possible, according to their math, that the Iliad was written after the commentary on the Iliad was written. A lot of great works of literature were like that. Think about it a different way, Trey. If you sampled a set of possible Earths that are otherwise not distinguishable from ours based on the amount of evidence you have, 95% of those Earths would have people talking about the Iliad at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe Um. Occam's Razor says (laughs) that's not the best possible model. (laughs) Well, how many possible Occam's razors say that, though? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's all of them. <laughs> Look, I think that this discussion is going in the wrong direction. I think there's a much bigger question that we need to address. And that is, frankly, biologists appear to have reached a state of boredom. And evolutionary <laughs> geneticists seem to be even more bored than normal biologists. And can't we do something to save them? I mean, it sounds like genetics either isn't much fun or there's nothing left to learn in the field because these geneticists have nothing left to do. So what's going on here? I don't know about these particular people, but it's often the case with physicists. Once they retire, they are used to being the smartest people in the room, but actually they're not because all the new young upcoming physicists you know, have newer models in their head that are better. And so then they go and they branch out into other fields and think that they know everything about everything. So I don't know if these guys are retired biologists, because that would be the dead giveaway. That would be the problem. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think they just haven't got anything left to do. Then they're They've run out of problems. adventurous. I mean, they, they should be looking into the future, not into the past, because, you know, predicting <laughs> when something happened that we already know when it happened. I'm insufficiently impressed, honestly. But they could look forward. They could take their Swadesh list and they would say, okay, so based on English Today at this very moment at this podcast, I hereby predict that all the SP clusters in syllable onsets will become SPL clusters within 20 minutes. Because it had to happen sometime, right? I think they Give or take boldly. 700 years. <laughs> And then we could test it. We could set a timer. And then if if <laughs> if in 20 minutes we're not saying spleech and spleeches, <laughs> then we, we've tested the model, right? And then we're good. Well, unless you have that 95% confidence interval of plus or minus 700 years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 20 well, minutes that, plus or minus 700 years. <laughs> uh, I particularly agree with that because they seem to have searched out a venue in which there's no danger of anyone testing their model on anything similar enough that would allow it to invalidate their model, if that makes any sense. Right. So there are a lot of other things that you might do with this type of approach where you are, in fact, kind of training it. You're trying to make it better so that you can then use it to make predictions that you can then test. But borrowing some additional information about the Iliad, which, you know, is within the realms of possibility, but barring that kind of information, what you're doing is announcing that your model predicts what philologists agree with once you've told it to try to land on what philologists agree with. <laughs> so technically, it agrees more with the philologists when you tell it to try to agree with the philologists. Right. They did do it without trying to agree with the philologists. Right. I don't really understand all of the math they're using, obviously. I think at some point they probably used a small Dirich on it because apparently the little Diriches are the ones that do things for you. (laughs) 
I'm not completely sure what a Deerich is. I have some ideas, but it would depend on a lot of different factors. It's but, one of the words in that, that simplified German, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> I think I could simplify their approach a good bit by using a single equals operator. <laughs> and I mean, if I were writing a program, I would say, okay, my model's prediction is going to be X, and philologists current judgment is y and my operation consists of assigning the value of y to x <laughs> i don't think you could write a whole paper about that oh there are venues <laughs> <laughs> it certainly has the, the benefit of being computationally efficient that's right occam's razor and all that <laughs> you know what i like about this is it can tell me plus or minus 700 years when i'm going to write my next paper for publication they could tell me this right you know what? To within 700 years, I can tell you when you're going to write all your papers. Nice. That's useful. It'll be between now and 700 years from now. <laughs> or 700 Did, um, years ago. I confess that I didn't make it through every detail of these articles. Did they determine that the Iliad was composed in South Dakota or Washington, D.C.? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and was that a Dutch name or a French name? Depending, <laughs> on, depending on where that was. <laughs> Getting back to something Bill said, you know, if they're so successful, what they should have done is they should have immediately turned around and dated Shakespeare. Absolutely. Oh. That's far enough away that oh. if this thing can work, it should be able to tell us, you know, something that happened 400 years ago. Well, I think they're doing that. That's their next paper, right? They couldn't put that all in one paper because it's two publishable ideas. Mm. But if they're using lexical replacement rates on Swadesh type stuff, I'm not sure 400 years is long enough. Hmm. That's possible. I don't remember the numbers. I think it is, because I think the replacement rates were percent per hundred years. So every hundred years you could do it, yeah. Yeah, so you know, you probably couldn't do it to the decade or anything, or a decade ago, but I think even Icelandic, which was very conservative, had single digits per hundred years. And so it was higher than that for other languages. Yeah, but I but, think it might be useful if they could date texts from the 1960s. But they're percents, right? And they only found, what was it, 173 words they were looking at. It doesn't work if I say, I've got 173 words, and there's a 0.01% chance that one of those will drift. That doesn't mean that I just add, right? Well, no, no, no. But the point is that even in a conservative language like Icelandic, I think you have a couple percent per century so that it's... But a particular word can't, per century, even given a century, that particular word can't 0.4% disappear. No, no, no. But if you have 200 words and you have four centuries and you have a change rate of 2% per year, then you would expect a little more than 8% of those 200 words, which is 16 words, to have changed. To be replaced. Yeah. So it's not super fine grain. And again, I, th I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think that I, that was Icelandic. So I think you should be able to get, you know. That seems wrong somewhere now. Well, that's why we don't do glottochronology yeah. <laughs> is because no, it I, seems I, wrong somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's specious. I don't trust my own judgment on that one, but I'm getting this nagging feeling that somewhere in there is a category error or something, and I'm just not. That's because they yeah. used math. No. <laughs> <sighs> well, just the idea that even if we trust what they said before, that they can account for 50% of the variability in a language over time by the single factor of the replacement rates, it's still only 50%. And that's why you have those giant error bars. That part actually makes it more believable to me because 
Presumably the 50% would be something to do with structural pressures or something like if we're talking about Indo-European languages, it goes back to Sapir's notion of language drift, right? That the structural stresses inherent at a given state will tend to push things in a particular direction. But everything else is things like, oh, surprise, we've been invaded and things like that that are right. a lot more historically mm-hmm. contingent. So I would get even more suspicious if it were a very high percent. So I'm actually suspicious of the 50% as being too high. But the idea if you have a one-factor model that only accounts for 50% of the variability, you should not be making any predictions based on that unless you have to. And I think the philologists have a better model. And the historians, you know, based on the evidence that they can glean from the text themselves and later commentary on them and histories and so on and so forth and archaeological evidence and all that kind of stuff. There's a reason we don't do glottochronology. You know, lexicostatistics are fine. Glottochronology is bad. And there's a reason for that. Beth seems to have brought that conversation grinding to a halt. Seems to. Let's have another word from our sponsor, and we'll be back with our final segment. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics, a true labor of love, with a bit more emphasis on the labor part, from the editors of Specgram. Truly, the human cost of producing this essential volume is well-nigh incalculable. We lost eight or nine interns just from the team dedicated to bringing the editor's green tea. I say eight or nine because the exact number's hard to remember. When you know you're going to lose so many, it's best not to give them individual names. On a more positive note, the book itself is an enormous, luxurious, tenure-sized 8.5 by 11 inches, which the metric interns assure us is several meters in each dimension, and contains over 150 articles and other items spanning 25 years of Specgram history. Visit specgram.com book and order your copy today. Welcome back to the Specgram podcast, everybody. Our last discussion raised an interesting possibility for linguists. As we noted, physicists and statisticians have been invading the field in large numbers. Well-intentioned. I mean, they are trying to help, and we do need it to a certain extent. But I think it's only fair that we try to help them, too. So we're going to start a segment in which linguists help out other fields that are wanting for linguistic methodology. I'm going to start by trying to help math because they typically need this kind of thing. And you can tell they like linguistics because they use Greek letters. So we're going to try to help them (laughs) some. I have noticed that mathematicians, and this includes computer scientists, think they're not allowed to divide things by zero because there's something about that that just throws them for a loop. I think linguistics can help them with this by informing them that Their problem is they don't understand that zero is polysemous. It has has multiple meanings, and it seems indetermined because they're not really sorting out which meaning they have. And depending on the meaning it has, you can actually solve for one divided by zero. Now, Mm -hmm. this is an early version, of course. I'm just taking a stab at this. But I would say there are at least four different meanings. One of them is nothing. Okay. (laughs) The second one is the absence of both a presence or an absence. It's kind of a privative marking kind of thing where it's the one that isn't marked, right? So it's not marked for being present or absent. Mm -hmm. Your third one is absence of a specific set of something or stuff. Okay, so as opposed to nothing, which would be the equivalent of that meaning of one that means 100% in statistics. 
This is the counterpart of that notion of one that means one compared to two or three, you know, kind of the natural number one. Because they don't distinguish between the meanings of one either, really. (laughs) Our fourth meaning of zero is there's nothing in the slot, but the fact I'm telling you there's nothing here when there are other nearby numbers implies that here is important, okay, as a place where other ones can be. That's placeholder zero. So we can now solve for one divided by zero. If I divide one by zero number one, I get possibly two answers depending on scope. In one case, I'm saying dividing by nothing means I'm not dividing. So one divided by zero equals one. <laughs> in the other one, That's beautiful. yeah. In the other one, I can take nothing away from one infinite times. So one divided by zero is infinity. Now, taking methodology from corpus linguistics, obviously our best answer is just to divide infinity by two. So that's the answer to that one. (laughs) In the second case, this comes the closest to what mathematicians actually think of as one divided by zero. If you try to divide by zero, two, it's a category error. You're doing the equivalent of saying, how many times can I remove two ocelots from four oranges? (laughs) Okay. So the fact that there's a number in the numerator means you're counting or measuring something marked in some way, but 0,2 says you're denying markedness, so it's a different category altogether. Okay, so the answer to that one divided by 0,2 is not actually a number. The answer is you've made a category error, and that's a mistake on your part. (laughs) One divided by 0 number 3 is a different kind of thing. If you ask yourself, how many times can you take an absence of something away from a set of somethings, the answer is zero number three, because that set of somethings has no absences in it, right? Okay. Okay. So the set of possible somethings that you could have had is infinite, but that's a different set, all right? So in more precise terms, the answer of one divided by zero number three is basically a Gricean operator times infinity, where the Gricean operator is the flouting signal, basically. Okay. (laughs) One divided by zero number four is more complex. Okay. This obviously isn't a good place for rigorous proof, but the short answer of one divided by zero number four is the set from negative infinity to infinity. Because evaluation of the expression requires expanding it since the actual state of the unwritten places to the left and right of the written zero is undetermined. The evaluation has to occur across a set of possible worlds. Since there's a possible world for every possible answer and at least one possible world in which it is not possible to evaluate the answer via possible worlds, all conceivable values become part of the answer. One divided by zero number four is best conceptualized as one, but it's really one number three. (laughs) Wow. Is this your dissertation? No, it's just this linguistics helps. I mean, this is the point (laughs) we're trying to make here. I would not have been able to say any of that without linguistics. I feel like I can walk through walls now. (laughs) (laughs) You can, Trey. (laughs) I should try it. And then we need new symbols, of course, for all these different zeros, which is going to require modification of calculators and such. So we've also helped all kinds of engineers at the same time. Mm. And some I think you design. could do it with tones. 
frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Low tone zero. zero. Mid tone zero. zero. High tone zero. I want to do and, with and click, floating I want, tones. I want to do a click song go zero and zero zero zero. <sighs> so I don't know if I should say <laughs> I could pretend to be the mathematician you're trying to help <laughs> and ask a question. No, I think we better leave that. <laughs> okay. So flock to him. You don't. You don't have to do a thing. You can look at division by zero from the point of view of continuity, and you actually get different answers. I wanted to see if they fit with what Bill's got, but apparently not. All right. <laughs> if they don't, it's if they don't, it's obviously a fault of the mathematical model. Or maybe there are additional zeros you haven't yet discovered. Oh, now that I'm perfectly willing to believe. Right. There's an infinite number of possible zeros. I wouldn't be a That's functionalist beautiful. if I thought all this stuff could be reduced to one term. <laughs> <laughs> all right, who wants to go next? Well, it's hard to imagine following that, but let me try. You know, we just had this interesting discussion, which served to show me that geneticists don't have enough to do. And so I think <laughs> we ought to help them out. You know, maybe it's all of biology has sort of run out of things to do in their own field, but at least genetics, because they've started spending their time doing linguistics instead. So they, they don't have enough to do over there in their own corner of the world. So I'm thinking that we should help them out, uh, particularly the geneticists. You know, they sometimes draw these trees that are a little bit like the ones that we draw, right? Oh, maybe their intent may be a little different, but they look similar. They've got lines and things at the bottom, nodes and that sort of thing, right? <laughs> so I'm thinking that, that we could help them out by giving them some concepts that would enrich their tree diagram. So, for example, what about C command? That is something <laughs> that has not showed up in the uh, genetics <laughs> literature. It's <laughs> my Isn't that where the platypus came from? (laughs) Well, right. Exactly. So the thing is that... I think the platypus is a creole, but... Well, I think that biologists could spend a lot of time arguing over whether the dodo sea commands the penguin or the other way around, right? So um, I think this would really reduce the level of ennui among geneticists, and that would be good for them. Hmm. They could also begin investigating where all the animals get case. Because I don't exactly, think they know that. Exactly. And that and, might really help. And they could also use this to determine that there are null animals around. Yeah, because to get a platypus, you need those invisible landing sites. <laughs> and the dodos left a trace. <laughs> Absolutely. The dodos have left traces. Yeah. And you can exercise creativity in deciding where those things land. It even provides some potential pointers for looking for fossil evidence, because now that you brought up sea command and platypuses, we should look on Ross Island. <laughs> it's off of Antarctica. It's called that for a reason. Well, you would have island constraints, I'm guessing. Ross's island constraints. I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that's going straight there. So we could certainly uh, get busy over publishing some articles in biology journals or plus one about these things. And I think, you know, we're going to make some progress. I feel a TED Talk coming on. I really do. I think you're on something <laughs> I think we ought to found plus two with that. <laughs> it's twice as good. <laughs> times two. Yeah. Plus times two. Trey, did you have anything? I wanted to help out physics. Oh, nice of you. Yeah. But I realized that I, I probably couldn't because physics has already adopted one of the most useful features of syntax in the form of string theory. They have an underlying abstract formalism driven by introspection that seems to work as long as you don't ask difficult questions, you don't look at the wrong data, and you hold your tongue just right, and it's almost <laughs> entirely unfalsifiable. 
So uh, it's 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 syntactic. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they need our help. So then I, I looked at geology, mm. and I realized it's probably too late to help geology. Um, they could <laughs> have learned from linguistics about how to stifle dissent and toss specious empirical data aside, and we could have helped them, but it's too late. And if they just figured this out for themselves early on, they could have avoided that whole plate tectonics revolution debacle. So <laughs> then I moved on to astronomy. And now here is a kindred discipline because they are more or less stuck with the observational data they get. They often can't mm -hmm. do proper experiments because they can't touch their subject matter. And I think some sociolinguo cosmologists should do an analysis of various features of galaxies or solar systems or nebulae or what have you and explain the distribution of those features in terms of prestige, class aspirations, mm -hmm. and in-group, out-group identification. Because it's easy to imagine that any old crappy planet would have aspirations to become an M-class planet someday. No Star Trek fans? <laughs> and, and they're clearly a kindred discipline. They have asterisks just like we do. Do they? Well, they put stars on things, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Asterisks? Yeah. Those are all little asterisks up there, aren't they? <laughs> oh, the whole universe is malformed. <laughs> I'm afraid that they're, they're not a kindred discipline if you look at the funding side of things. Somehow they've managed to capture public attention in a way we haven't. I know what their problem is. Because the problem happened a couple of hundred years ago. The part of their field that was the most similar to linguistics split off and named itself astrology. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so maybe that's where we need to be looking. Hmm. So if you have an analogy, astronomy is to astrology as blank is to blank. Fill in the blanks with linguistics and philology. <laughs> Philologist would refuse to go in the blank on general principles. Okay. That's and too I cooperative. <laughs> and I can't do that. I got to keep my day job, so I totally can't touch that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sherry, did you have something? I do. I'm really ready to help out the chemists because I think the chemists are doing way too much work. They're struggling too much, and I'm ready to help them out. Because the chemists, they keep studying all these different elements, and they do all this stuff to figure out the structure of these different molecules, and they're just going about this the whole wrong way. What they need is a form of universal grammar, right? So we're going to give them universal chemistry, so you just study one element, and mm. this, this will be less trouble, it will be faster, it will be way less dangerous, it will be way less expensive. And you can choose your favorite element. I mean, everyone's got a favorite element, right? You can choose whichever one you want. It doesn't matter. Just pick one. <laughs> I would and pick helium. Yeah, yeah, right. I would pick helium because it's funny and it explodes nicely. And then if you want to do a subdiscipline of feminist chemistry instead of helium, you could have shelium, right? You could do a whole thing. And that's for... <laughs> That someone could have that as their master's thesis, you know, so there's like little other things they could do. And if you are not content with the elements that already exist, you could go into con chemistry and you could invent your own element and you could study that because why not? I mean, if we've got universal chemistry, then we don't have to worry about all those surface differences that they used to take so seriously. So we could make our own element if we want to. We could call it spectrumarium. <laughs> We could give it a number and we could make it our own number. It could be 700 because you can see that, right? Or it could be plus or minus 700. <laughs> and it would just save them a whole lot of time. And I think it would just free them from this mass of data, which I think is just dragging them down. I think I have some really bad news for you. 
What? Which is, once again, the physicists have butted in. I think that's their suggestion to chemistry, too. It's all just physics. If you could just get the physics working. They can't quite simplify it down to one, but it's all electrons and neutrons and protons, and you're done. So this is a slightly better model, perhaps, because you only need one element, but you only need three things from the physics. And then they got rid of the electrons and neutrons and protons, too. You smashed them, right? Well, they're... they're, Oh, they've decomposed them all. They they keep finding smaller and smaller things. They're all just just squiggles of one thing. (laughs) So I think you can do most Earth chemistry with electrons, protons, and neutrons. You don't want to go down to quarks because there's actually more of those. And then when you get down to the strings, it's really bad because there's 11 dimensions. You don't want to go that far, right? So I think the chemist should stop at the... uh, Atomic particles. Yeah, but it's just one piece of paper with 11 dimensions, and then you do origami with it. (laughs) (laughs) If I recall correctly from my undergraduate education, chemistry is just physics that smells bad, right? (laughs) It explodes nicer. Chemistry does. (laughs) Biology is physics that moves. (laughs) And Sherry... Sherry, don't go around talking about spectrum having its own element because... We've got all the unobtainium that we've got in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to keep people away from that stuff. Yeah, I I understand. All right. With that, I think we're going to have to say goodbye uh, because that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we will be dialoguing the hegemony of buzzwords, facilitating higher order thinking around such ostentatious erudition, opening inquiry into the influence of these intangibles on the specious myth of transparency, and discussing whether they marginalize learning outcomes among left brain learners at the interdisciplinary interinstitutional interface. You know, what terrifies me about that sentence you just uttered is I'm pretty sure it was written on a handout at some meeting I was on recently. (laughs) Or on a perky slide. (laughs) With clip art. Smooth. We don't have to be too smooth. That's why we have editing. Lots and lots of editing. (laughs) Thank goodness. All right, somebody's licking their microphone. Stop that. But I think the way we should do the secret word this time is we should only say synonyms and let people guess what the secret word is. (laughs) Well, since they don't know there's a secret word, I don't think that would work. (laughs) So once this goes into the outtakes, they will. Okay, so. (laughs) I think this whole thing is specious anyway, really. We'll just blame Keith. Blame Keith. I'm sure it's Keith. I'll I'll just just talk more clearly. Let's have another word from our sponsor. Now, if you said sponsor, then we could have proven that. You know. <laughs> our specious sponsor. Our specious sponsor. We will speak to our specious sponsor. My chemistry one's, I don't know, it's a little bit short. I don't know what you mean by short. short. It's about the length that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Plus or minus 400 years. Then they could have predicted that if they'd tried, I'm sure. It wasn't actually 700 years, but... uh, Oh, actually, it was 700 years on either side, wasn't it? Mm. I used math! Yeah, that's right. Sorry. (laughs) Pluses and minuses. (laughs) Glottochronology is bad. That sounded like the last word. (laughs) 